I'm Christina Jurekides, and we're committed to making the seemingly impossible possible. We stand at the intersection of the values of humanity with the value of technology. Inspire for Impact, the podcast, is a place where we have conversations with inspirational entrepreneurs, community leaders, and representatives of organisations who are boldly creating a future by design. The good, the bad, the warts, and the inspiration. We're leading the way to be the change we want to see in the world. Conversations that bring to light the magic that is happening on a daily basis all over the globe. And welcome to another episode of Inspired for Impact and Beyond Excited for the conversation that is about to happen with the amazing, wonderful Holly Ransom. Holly, Fulbright Scholar, Harvard Kennedy School, CEO of Emergent, keynote speaker, interviewer, moderator. I'm not sure what you don't do. Before we launch into everything, could you explain to uh, some of our listeners who may not be familiar what a Fulbright Scholar is? Because I'm super excited about that as well. Asking and thanks for having me. Um, so the Fulbright program is an incredible sort of uh, educational exchange that was uh, set up by Senator William Fulbright, an American senator at the time, uh, 75 years ago now, extraordinarily, in terms of its Australian history, um, really to foster those uh, international relations and that idea of building soft power connections. So facilitating the opportunity for scholars from the US and Australia, and, and there are these kind of binational exchanges all over the world. So there are Fulbright scholars from a myriad of countries where you get the opportunity to apply to go uh, and study at a US institution of your choice. Um, and in doing so, to build those kind of collegiate relationships, uh, those educational exchanges, those research collaborations, you name it, that can build not just um, that benefit to your own work, but that idea of those ongoing partnerships and opportunities and hopefully fostering better diplomatic relations around the world. So I was very fortunate to get awarded um, a Fulbright scholarship to go and do my Master's of Public Policy at Harvard, uh, which I did start in Boston pre-pandemic. And uh, that was stopped in terms of my study on, on campus when the pandemic hit last March. So I completed my final sort of year of my Master's program online, sort of doing night shift from Australia because of the, uh, the Boston time difference. But just so incredibly fortunate to, to study in an institution like that. It never would have been possible without the generosity of, of the Fulbright organization and it is a non-profit so it's all of the supporters that actually believe in that mission that actually make scholarships and opportunities like I had possible so I'm, I'm indebted to everyone that supports that program. That's a beautiful thing to say and it, it is amazing but it's a perfect segue into um, my first official question for you. Uh, how do you express your purpose because purpose passion have become um, very much common words in conversation these days I think they're gaining a lot more traction. And according to my reading of your book, we're finding that as well. But how do you express your purpose? Great question. And in the book, I talk about an exercise that I find really powerful to do that through, uh, which is one Paul Ruse, the sort of legendary AFL coach shared with me, which is this idea of writing down this this chief role model business card. So taking your business card, or if that's a little bit too old school for some people, the idea of writing a virtual one or changing your LinkedIn byline to something other than your official job title, whether that's a chief product officer or a marketing director or whatever it might be, and actually writing chief role model. And I like to think of it as sort of chief role model of the change that you want to see in the world. And when I think about that for me, and, and this is sort of sharing the way that mine's written, you know, one of those is about um, being a master questioner and really with that goal of unlocking new conversation and giving us the space to generate new solutions and new answers, because I think that's a critical part of the equation. 
The second part for me is empowering leaders with the toolkit to be the change that they want to see in the world. So I have a, a real belief uh, about the criticality of democratising access to leadership development and the want to play a role, not just in starting those conversations, but then in uh, the, the kind of rapid skill acquisition that we need to ensure that more people are capable of meeting the challenges in front of them in the world in 2021 and beyond. And as well, that the, the capability and the responsibility of leadership is shared more broadly and we're letting more people into the leadership game too. It's lacking a little bit of diversity, as you and I both know, when we look at uh, the leadership ranks in official title positions right around the world. I think we need to crack open to begin with, but that's the notion of what a leader looks like. To be a leader in any walk of life, in any a role that you see yourself in in your life, you don't need anyone to hand you the leadership keys. But at the same time, we need more people being given access to the skills and the tools and the capabilities in order to make sure that more people can progress up to the heights of organisations, communities, countries, you name it. Yeah, and I love the way that you express that. I think a lot of things have been cracking open uh, over the last 18 months to two years. And I think, you know, if there's a silver lining and there are many not silver linings associated with COVID, but one of those things has been the acceleration of things that were happening before at almost a snail's pace and now have to have to quickly advance. And I think the conversations around passion, purpose, leadership, they're one of the things that we've noticed greatly uh, and impact how, how you are going to have that impact. I'm really curious to find out what actually makes Holly tick because I read your words, I've listened to some of the videos um, and, and the interviews that you've conducted. What makes you tick? How does your brain work? Can we unpack that a little bit for the people that are listening? Best to. Um, you can maybe help me understand it more. I often think you have to talk it out loud. Certainly talking it out loud does make, make my brain work. So I think one of the, the most useful things to know about yourself is the way that you like to learn. And I'm definitely what I would describe as a kinesthetic learner. So I'm someone who learns through participation, through doing, through being able to get actively engaged with subject matter. Um, which is the way I've designed my life to facilitate that sort of learning. Um, so it's why being in conversation with other people is far more beneficial to me uh, than static absorption of information. I'm not particularly visual. I don't learn so much, you know, that by sitting and watching a documentary as I will as I'm sitting down with someone who's the actual subject matter and trying to unpack it with them. So I think that's definitely one of the things that makes my, my brain work. Uh, I am innately and forensically, to use my grandmother's description of me, uh, forensically curious um, so uh, there's this want to make sense of the world uh, and to try and understand things and this belief um, that it's only through asking better questions that we're going to get better answers. Uh, and so I always try and approach with curiosity and humility things that I don't understand in the hope that if nothing else, I leave a conversation with a bit of, bet a, bit of a better understanding as to how I uh, don't understand the world or how I might be able to do something different. Uh, let alone perhaps with uh, a broader understanding or, or an ability to move a dialogue forward. So there, there's probably some of the dimensions of the way that my brain works. I think um, it, it ticks a lot. Probably my struggle is more turning it off <laughs> and finding those activities where I can uh, be in a state of mindfulness and sort of block, block that out, often to return to thinking afterwards with far greater, greater clarity, as we know, one of the great benefits of mindfulness. But that's probably been the harder piece of work for me over the last decade. But we are finding also that as there's an acceleration of change with technology, there's an acceleration of change with yoga, mindfulness, meditation, because it's the only way we're really going to handle the constant state of change is to live in that present moment. Uh, and then we can absorb, as you say, come back to things with greater clarity. Love that. I can imagine you as, a, as, a, um, as an infant toddler walking around going, why, why, why? Um, one of those kids. Yeah. And, and aren't they brilliant? Uh, so 
for me, a lot of people go, oh, you're lucky, you're this, you're that. And I go, well, some people aren't lucky. They put themselves in the pathway for things to happen and, and they create multiple opportunities. How have you put yourself in the pathway of action to create those opportunities that you've managed to create for yourself? Great question. And it's twofold, right? Like I am incredibly privileged to have been born in Australia, you know, to have so many opportunities to have the education that I've had. So I, I definitely acknowledge that privilege. Uh, one of the things I talk about in the book, though, to circle back to what you're talking about on purpose, because a lot of people say to me, how do you find it if you don't know what it is? We haven't quite necessarily got it, you know, with the degree of clarity that you feel like some of the people in your life do. And one of the ideas I talk about in the book is this notion of putting yourself where lightning strikes. And I think one of the things that I've attempted to do is to follow my curiosity. And in doing so, I didn't, don't think I realised from the time it's probably more on reflection. And it's certainly something uh, doing the research for the book. I noticed there's a pattern of people who are, you know, pioneers of um, different ways of leading and thinking is they've been prepared to put themselves out there in places that they might collide with their passion and purpose. Um, so whether that's going and volunteering for organisations that they're interested in, whether or not that's having conversations with people that are from totally different fields, whether that's going exploring down your street and striking up conversation with someone you haven't met yet, starting a side hustle and experimenting and seeing the limits of your creativity, teaching yourself to code, whatever it might be. Um, I think that's something that I have routinely practised as a, as a discipline. Um, and again, I think it just comes with the notion of applied curiosity, right? Like it's really easy to sit there and go, oh, that's interesting. I don't understand that. It's another thing. And I, I'm one of the, the things I, I have as sort of a mantra of this new model of leadership is it's choosing to do the next brave thing over and over again. And I think we need to scale down what we mean brave to be. Brave doesn't mean you have to quit your job right now and go and do something else. But brave does mean having the courage to go, oh, I'm maybe going to go find something out about that. How would I find something out about that? Well, who do I know that I can have a conversation with? You know, what can I go and research? And then what can I go and do? You know, how might I test uh, that idea? How might I get involved in a project that's attempting to do something about that? So I think for me, the stories, uh, it's a thread started by my grandmother and sort of a very strong influence that she had on my life very early. But this idea that when you walk past things, you tell the world it's okay. And I think the common thread in my life has been when I've stumbled across things that are not okay, I preparedness not to walk past it, but in those moments to say, how might I do something about this as well? And I think that's the courage, not just to not walk past it, because that's an act in and of itself, then to dig your heels in and go, okay, how do I try and do something here? And so I think for me, it's been that active choice. And then it's been that journey of kind of discovery afterwards. Who can I go and pick the brain of? How can I have a go? what might starting look like and that preparedness to kind of roll up your sleeves and start experimenting. Yeah, I love that. And I love the, I had this amazing vision when I was uh, reading that part about your grandmother with the, you know, the, the, I think you said she was five foot pointing a finger up. and yeah, going, She's tiny. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. I think that, that's just incredible. And I think the legacy, our grandparents, we really need to respect the, the wisdom of age. My grandfather had a similar story. He lined, he had five boys, lined them up, um, gave them each a single stick and said, break that snap, you know, really easy to break. Gave them then a bundle of five sticks, five brothers, five sticks and said, break that clearly much harder to break. And he said, there's a lesson. He said, if you stand together, um, you are much harder to break. And I think that's a message that's coming home loud and clear right now with COVID, we really need to stand together uh, in order to, 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 you know, help us all progress. Um, you I love how he taught that as well. Like I think with both examples for me, it's the 
active nature of the behavior demonstrating it versus just saying it's that idea of I'm showing and there's so much power when I think about uh, that story I'm sure that's stuck in your your mind ever since it's passed down generations of the family obviously in folklore in that regard it's a little same with my, my grandma I think there's a lot to be said and again it gets back to that piece of active role modeling it's one thing to say it it's another thing to do it and if people are following our actions how do we start making sure that they're teaching what we want to pass down yeah, st standing by what you say, doing what you say, walking the talk, you know, all the time. Love that. Um, which brings us back to leadership, walking the talk, doing what you say you're going to do. You discuss leadership and the, con the concepts of push and pull um, and empowering those people around you. What are your thoughts on holacracy? I know Zappos went down that path. Uh, probably some people would say unsuccessfully. I don't think there's any such thing as unsuccessful. It, it either works or it doesn't, but at least you've tried it, which comes back to the bravery. How brave are you going to be? Um, because at that point in time, Zappos had their highest attrition rate. Ricardo Semler tried it. Um, at Semco had much more success uh, around that. What are your thoughts? How should leadership be structured? How should organisational leadership be structured? And I think what was amazing for me about Zappos, to your point, is the courage to start an entirely new conversation around organisational design and leadership at a time where, I mean, it was really ahead of the curve. It'd still be ahead of the curve now, really. There's not many companies that are embracing a particularly different structure to leadership. So it was a very different conversation. And I think one of the things that we know about whenever you make a massive departure from the way that things have historically been done, and that's all the same notion, a major experiment is you're never going to get it right in the first go. And I think what we're seeing every time people are taking examples of that and building on it is people are refining, they're making changes, they're understanding that there are elements of it that maybe work, maybe there are some of it uh, that don't. When I come to thinking more broadly about leadership, uh, one of the things I talk about in the book is this idea that, to your point, like we're moving away from this hierarchical structure of leadership. That was a world, I think, that optimised for the industrial age, but certainly doesn't in a knowledge economy where we know when we think about the role that humans playing, it's increasingly those caregiving skills. It's increasingly kind of that ability to, to think creatively. It's a really different working environment. We need to optimize that. And so I think productivity and leadership have, have very different dimensions to them in that world than what they did previously. I don't think uh, there's a one size fits all approach to structure in that. So I, one of the things I, I do believe is what we're seeing um, a the end of hierarchy as we knew it like I don't think hierarchical organizations as they once stood with command and control style structures to leadership hold anymore I think we can see that for some time now in all the data around the most engaging places to work in the world that doesn't mean that we don't need structure that doesn't mean that we don't need you know um, people who are in different positions and the notion of you know, professional development, the idea of promotion, all those sorts of things that goes hand in hand with sort of the way that we're wired. We want to be progressing, takes time to build capability and be able to succeed in different ways. I think what probably doesn't link in with that, though, is the idea of who has a voice and who matters. So I think that's one of the things that's gone first. You know, previously, I think the idea of leadership and hierarchy was, OK, the pointy end of the tree you are in the room making decisions and everyone else is sort of informed afterwards about the way that we've chosen to move forward. So I think the, the one thing that we sort of, I think we can say quite universally is that that has gone by the wayside. That idea of creating cultures where, you know, people feel that they matter, that people feel that their voice carries weight, um, that their opinions count, even if they happen to be a minority within that particular organisation, they have the right to be heard and, you know, concerns addressed and opinions aired. 
I think that's really, really important. I think the structures themselves as to how leaders are actually putting their people to, to work most effectively and how they're working with them most effectively, I think that's still uh, a little bit of a case by case. I look forward to seeing different examples of that scale over the journey, but I think we're at the very early days of new organisational design and I'm intrigued for how the pandemic's going to accelerate that because I just think the way that we've challenged the notion of physical space and location, the way that we've challenged the idea of flexibility and what that looks like, um, will invite a whole lot of new conversation around work in general and the boundaries of it. Uh, and alongside that, I think will come the, the idea of structure. I mean, when you talk about the, great, the year of resignation or the great resignation, you know, that's happening in the US at the moment, it's showing that there's a really great impetus now on the culture and the want to feel pulled towards your work. And if I'm not engaged, why am I going to show up? I can go off somewhere else and do my own thing or I can head in a different direction. I'm going to prioritise wellbeing, quality of life, et cetera. So I feel we're at the most interesting time in leadership and organisational culture of, of decades at this moment. It, yeah, absolutely. And I, th I think also um, something you said then reminded me of the John F. Kennedy story where he's at NASA and he speaks to the janitor right. and he says, what are you doing here? And he said, Mr. President, I'm helping put a man on the moon. And I like that is just the epitome of every single organisation. Um, every person within that organisation has such an integral role to play, which is why I'm also a great fan of Zappos. I spent, managed to spend some time there a few years ago but their whole training system where they actually have to live in each department for a, a period of time to know how integral each department is to the success of the whole organisation, I think is um, really important as well. The other thing I'd like to pick up on, on what you said is that is the, the whole um, leadership push, pull. And I know that you wrote about it in the book, in, in The Leading Edge. You write about leading yourself first, values, culture. I love the way the book's divided into the two halves as well. Actually, there's not much about the book I don't like. Instead, there's nothing about the book I don't like. Um, but you write about, you know, the, first of all, you've got to lead yourself with values, culture, authenticity, integrity. Um, the talk's always been around, but now it almost feels like we're moving from talk to walk. Do you think, uh, like in the, exactly as you said, in the time that we're in, where there is this accelerated change and an accelerated questioning of leadership, have we reached tipping point in moving from, from talk to walk um, or is it something that we have to consider more? What are your thoughts? What are you finding you know, in industry? Walking the talk when it comes to what they say about leadership? Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting one. I think a couple of observations I'd make about it. I, I think uh, you and I have a shared passion around sort of the the implementation chasm, as I call it. Um, and I think you said uh, earlier, your, your favourite quote when we were talking before we got going was sort of, uh, you know, imagination without action is hallucination or something to that effect, which I think is a brilliant one. Um, and it is, I think there's a lot of people who have the best intentions. Uh, and one of the things I've observed is that we've got a bit of a challenge at the moment of time that we're in, I think, in best intentions converting into the action that we want to see. And giving people the benefit of the doubt, part of why I think that's the case is because I think we're still uh, operating with tools, um, structures that were built for a very different world. You know, a lot of the leaders that I talk to, and I'm sure this is uh, something you found a lot, Christina, too, you know, they are confronted by the challenges of, of busyness. They're confronted by incredible amounts of noise being pulled in every which direction. And so these ideas that we've got around, you know, these moments where things are going to calm down again and we can properly get bandwidth to go away and do the strategic plan and to think and to whatever it might be, 
that are kind of these things that allowed us the greenfield space, the the anchor activities, all of that. They sort of end up getting pushed further and further and further down because uh, they, they never really arrive. That moment where we're perfectly ready to turn our attention to the next thing. Funnily enough, that's that's a little bit like a mirage that we never quite arrive at. And so I think a lot of things never get out of the starting blocks because we have this notion of what doing them perfectly looks like or this notion of the fact that it's going to slow it down or there's a better day tomorrow to do it. So I think this idea of how do we actually find opportunities to break some of these actions that we know we need to take down into smaller chunks? How do we insert these micro habits into the way that we work as leaders individually and the way that we work collectively in teams and cultures is a really important idea that we need to be very conscious of. One of the things I like of sort of the world of, of Drucker in particular from sort of that management vintage is this notion that's as important that we think about what we stop as it is about what we start. We're really good at celebrating and praising starting and doing more. And the thing that I think he and, and also Steve Jobs quite famously, you know, I'm sort of as proud of Apple at the things that we say no to as I am the things we say yes to, that whole mantra that we can't truly say yes to things until we say no. So I always encourage leaders to reflect on how do you make a discipline of saying to yourself and to your organisation, what is it that I need to stop, we need to stop, because it's no longer serving us. It's not working, customers aren't buying it, it's not great for staff engagement, it's just not functioning. And then once we've had that conversation, what do we need to start? What should we be trying? Where's the experiment? So I think finding some ways of sort of breaking those things down into micro habits is one. I think the second challenge we've got on the kind of leadership converting to action is I still think there's a lot of people, and I think this is a product of the stories that we get told about leadership, that say, oh, that's not for me. I'm not, I'm not a leader or I'm not a leader in the way that people talk about leaders. And I think that's in part because of the lack of diversity of the people we hold up as examples of role models of who leaders are. And then I think there's also this problem of scale, this whole idea and this mantra that comes out of Silicon Valley, which love them, you know, but it does it does overwhelm some people. Oh, if it's not reaching 500 million lives, it's not worth doing. And I think we need to remind people that whatever it is that is bringing your purpose and passion to life in this world is worth doing. If that is gonna to touch two lives, 20 lives, 200 lives, and it also always has to start there before it can get to 500 million. So don't knock yourself before you start. You may well get there. But that whole idea that we actually need to bring down some of the barriers to entry and create a much more welcoming environment of who is invited in to lead, whether that's in their family, community, however they want to define it. And then the scale not, not being a question of the meaningfulness of their action. I love that because especially because you never know the ripple effect that what you do or say to one person is going to have on a whole community, you know, let's just throw Rosa Parks' name in there, um, for example, and the effect that she had on Martin Luther King. But the other thing that I, I love what you said then is the whole um, how do you how do you know what to stop start um, so red light, orange light, green light, but also that's I think where purpose and passion integrate with that because we often measure you know one, one of our mantras is we enable the enablers so when we're asked to do a project i go are we going to be enabling enablers if we if we say yes to this project and if it's a hell yes it's a hell yes you know and if it's like oh well we might do it indirectly or da, 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 um, then we probably say no at that point but we always find something um to to pass on you know a, a, a referral or something for the for the job that we may not be doing that we think is equally as valid but that's I also think that's where the magic of, of passion, purpose, values comes in, where you can where you can measure everything. So many things to, to unpack in, in everything that you've said, but I am going to move on to the next question. Um, 
you actually interviewed uh, SU faculty expert and very dear colleague, Dr. Vivian Ming, um, and made a point of writing in the book to cover as diverse a group of leadership approaches as you possibly could. What were the poignant moments of learning for you and all those people that, that you interviewed uh, and, and like absolutely tons of respect for Dr. Vivian Ming, love everything that she's done, had multiple conversations with her. She's amazing. Um, what were the poignant moments for you and the learnings? Like, as you say, the, the whole curiosity, the asking questions. It, it was amazing getting the opportunity to pick the brain. Vivian Ming is extraordinary and uh, such an interesting uh, lived experience and level of expertise when it comes to the topic of diversity and inclusion uh, just could not be a more interesting voice, I think, to have in that conversation globally. So I encourage those of you who aren't familiar with her work to, to do some research. Um, there's some amazing stuff she's doing around diversity taxes and uh, you know, looking at inclusion with a really different lens. Um, when it came, I mean, it was a really intentional focus for, for two reasons. You know, one, because I think we need to be holding up examples of a far more different group of leaders because I think you know and it sets in early right I've done this before I've gone into primary schools this is part of research for the book and I've said all right let's draw what a leader looks like and it's amazing uh what comes back you know from very young kids and I've done this as early as 10 year olds uh and they're drawing men and they're quite often drawing men in quite traditional environments they've got like a a war military angle to them or they've maybe got a sporting dimension to them or something like that and that's what a leader looks like and so for me, and, and one of the people I interviewed in the book was Gina Davis uh, with her work at the, her um, film and television institute where they're looking at the top grossing movies and TV shows and we're showing a generation an incredibly biased still uh, view of, of narratives, you know, where, where women are, you know, 17% uh, of the protagonists of major films, you know, in the, the 10 years that she was benchmarking and, uh, you know, they're making up next to 25% uh, of crowd scenes and they're just absent from entire careers and industries. So we've got a role to do, I think, in, in changing the conversation. And so for me, part of it was actually wanting to role model and showcase people that were being the change they wanted to see the world and demonstrating leadership in a multitude of different ways. So the book has 60 plus case studies, it's equal gender split, there's 42 different industries, there's 20 plus countries featured in terms of the, the leaders and the cultural diversity. There's every sexual orientation. There was a real want for me to be mindful of that so that everyone could see themselves in the story or in the purpose and the passion that these leaders were leading with too. Because um, as you said, there are many different ways of, of thinking about how you relate into a story, but I wanted everyone to be able to see that. The second is, you know, when we don't count those stories in, we miss all those diverse perspectives. And, you know, for me, it was really interesting talking to people who were not your atypical set of leaders, you know, who were... Uh, leading, you know, uh, whether it was dynamic startups, uh, you know, there's a number of leaders in the book that are under the age of 40 that have built, you know, rapidly growing social enterprises or really fast growing businesses. There are a number who are on the ground in developing countries, pioneering, you know, solutions to development problems, you name it. Like there was just fascinating to see uh, people at the coalface and how they talk about issues when they are living being the change they want to see in a way that sometimes I feel is a little bit different from the way that we can see it written about in academic books or theorised about. And what I wanted to do through their lived example and what I thank them so greatly for sharing their stories and helping me do was to make the book so pragmatic. So in these stories and in their lessons, it could be, okay, if you want to have a go at this, here's how to do it. 
and we could break it down. So littered through the book are examples of if this idea resonates, if this sounds like something worth trying on, here's three steps, here's an idea, here's an exercise, here's what so-and-so did. Um, and I hope that that's a real difference in the book too. So I think the thing I was struck by was not only the uniqueness of their perspectives in the uh, sense that I don't feel they get uh, enough airtime within the common discourse around a lot of leadership topics, whether that's about uh, the notion of leadership itself or whether that's about topics like diversity, inclusion and culture and leading systems and all those sorts of uh, subtopics, or whether it was the fact that in in such lived examples, there was such a richness, a treasure trove of sort of breadcrumbs that I think each and every one of us who want to emulate what these wonderful people are doing or learn from them and go, okay, how does that apply to my world? We can pick up and, and follow the trail and it's going to lead us to our own ideas and ways of putting it into action. I will definitely make sure to put all the links to the, to the book um, in the notes for this podcast. It's amazingly well-written. I've read lots and lots and lots and lots of business books and I really love the language that you've used and the case study. Like, as you say, case studies make everything real and landed in reality and you've, and you've got such a diverse number of case studies. And it reminded me of, um, so we went in and did some work with a, a group of counsellors, leaders at a, at a particular council level, uh, and they all had to say the project that they were leading and this one brave, amazing soul said, you know what, I don't want to be a leader. It's not my natural thing. I want to be the person that stands behind all these leaders, helping you all achieve what you need to achieve. And I think there's lots of things in your book around that self-leadership um, that highlight the bravery um, of that woman who stood up and said that in this group full of her peers uh, of leaders. Going from her to one of the most amazing uh, brains, because I absolutely think she was a most amazing uh, brain and EQ'd person um, that, that I've had the pleasure of working with, to Einstein, who said that creativity is intelligence having fun. He also said that imagination is more important than knowledge. Knowledge is limited. Imagination encircles the world. What's your philosophy on creativity and imagination and the direction um, learning might take to benefit future generations? Good question. Uh, I'm a huge proponent of the desperate need for more creativity and the unleashing of more creativity. And I say that because uh, I was probably someone that if you'd taken me back a few years ago, I would have just said, oh, I'm not a creative person, you know, because in my head, the way I define creativity was you know, drawing and, and being kind of in a creative or an artistic creative pursuit. It was kind of the, the way that I thought about it. And one of the, the big uh, resets for myself and, and certainly the way that I, I'm hoping to encourage the reset of this in, in cultures as well, uh, in, you know, in teams and organisations is the idea that that is by no means what we mean when we talk about creativity. And one of the most encouraging things of, of this sort of line of research in, in preparing for the book and writing it was the idea that we actually need to all get comfortable with the fact we're all born creative um, because when we go and look at creativity, you know, what do we see as, as the kind of bedrocks of creativity? It's questioning and it's play. And when you're looking for those two things personified, you're looking at children. Um, if you need creativity in your life, spend more time around kids and start to un-adult yourself in terms of pairing back all those kind of norms that tell us we shouldn't be asking questions or don't ask questions unless you know the answer or all those tropes that we've kind of got stuck in a little bit, I think, and that idea that, oh, we can't play, we've got to be serious. Play is serious business. And I actually think we need to, to try that on for size a little bit. And I share a story in the book of uh, probably two years ago now, again, pre-pandemic, taking a housemate that was living with my partner and I at the time to an escape room for his birthday. 
and it was sort of there, uh, you know, we, we had signed up for the stretch escape room. We were sort of meant to have four to eight people. There were only three of us. Uh, and we completely burnt out. Like there is absolutely no way of redeeming ourselves. It was a colossal failure. Uh, we, we had fun, but it, we didn't make it out of much at all. We needed a lot of help, et cetera. Anyway, afterwards, we were hanging around sort of licking our wounds uh, in the uh, reception area, and there was a party of a whole bunch of eight-year-olds, uh, eight-year-old girls, actually, that were there. And without even catching my bias, I said to the uh, guy running the escape room, oh, what do you have to change? Like, what modifications do you need to make for the kids? And he laughed. And he just said, are you kidding? The kids have the room records on every single escape room we've got in this place. And he said they asked for help faster. Um, they're so much more prepared to just have a go and do. Um, and they're, they're just, they're not geared to think about things and overcomplicate them in the way that adults do. And, you know, it's, it's the same if we go and look at the MIT Marshmallow Challenge, which is sort of the other benchmark in how quickly and creatively can we solve problems. Again, kids kids beat the NBAs by a country mile. So it's really interesting that I think in many ways we've all got that creativity within us. And sadly, I think our schooling system, as Ken Robinson so famously said with his TED Talk, kind of kill the creativity. And then I think our, our workplaces have done a fairly good job of kind of putting the nail in the coffin if we weren't already killed at school in terms of the uh, the creative spirit within each of us. So I think we've got to really be mindful of how we create the space for ourselves to re-engage with that creativity. Um, my partner and I have instituted this thing this year called Creative Dates, where once a month, when we're not locked down in COVID, we're getting a little more creative now we are every month, um, we go out and do something creative that's completely, we take turns alternating picking, but the idea that we go off and do something that's really you know, out of our normal world, engaging a creative spirit, um, pursuit that's enlivening part of the brain or creating an entirely new experience. Whatever it is, I think that notion of encouraging more play, you know, challenging yourself to go to an improv class, challenging yourself to just be asking more questions or being mindful of how many questions you ask in a day, spending more time around four and five-year-olds and letting yourself be free and engaged with that inquisitiveness. Um, I think there's a, a responsibility each of us have to incubate that back in ourselves and then to think about how we create the space inside our organisations to do the same because it, there's a really big barrier in the world of busy when we get caught in that productivity loop of getting things out the door and done and ticking things off a to-do list around how we actually create the, the discipline of creating space uh, to step back, be creative, think on things uh, and engage or even nourish ourselves enough that creativity can flourish. So I think that's a really big challenge for modern workplaces and it's, and it's a really big challenge in the reality of this pandemic at the moment too, where I think a lot of us are just in a holding pattern trying to find a way through and, and, and that is absolutely okay. Uh, we're all doing the best that we can. But I think the importance of finding ways to... Um, look after ourselves, nourish ourselves, be a part of creative communities or dangle our toe back into creative water. Uh, that's a really major opportunity and challenge for all leaders at the moment. I love that. We, we actually had a strategy day um, not long ago and we did it online and we, had a, we played an escape room game and there was so much laughter and so much collaboration and everything else. And the, the other thing I'd like to share is I remember naming a program, uh, Create and Innovate. And I'd just come back from um, Berkeley University and you know, creativity and innovation was all over the science department and the engineering department. And somebody looked at me and said, oh no, you can't call it that because creativity means fine arts and ceramics. And I went, <laughs> so very much aligned with that. I've got one more question for you. Um, there seems to be 
large questions around trust, you know, trust of government, trust of information, trust, trust, trust. And, and I've heard lots of people say uh, in, in when they've been challenged in uh, beliefs or, or, or decisions that have been made, but we voted, you know, we're, we're part of a democracy. We voted this government in. We need to trust their decisions. Oh, no, if it was the other government, I'd trust them. And I'm not, I'm not naming any countries. This has happened in multiple conversations around different countries. So my, the whole thing is, what's your take on trust? What's your take on democracy? What are you noticing in leadership at the moment around those whole issues of trust? Without question, it's challenged. Uh, and I think we see that um, for those who follow sort of the Edelman trust barometer and the like, who've been benchmarking trust levels across countries for, for some time now, looking at it, not just in government, should I say, but in business and in civil society and the media, um, it's been a very demoralising last decade. Um, we actually saw a brief, this is speaking Australia, New Zealand specific, we certainly saw a a jump last year in government trust for the first time in a long time during the early stage of the pandemic. I'll be very interested for the way that I assume that will have bottomed out now with what's happened in 2021 when we get the update later this year. Um, but I think trust across the board is, is definitely challenged. Um, and, you know, one of the things that's interesting for me, and there's this interesting parallel, I guess, talking to a lot of you who are leading in, in business, when we look at kind of Project Aristotle out of Google and the work that they did around high-performing teams, and then you look at sort of this, this major consumer survey that I can send you the link to to put in the show notes regarding sort of customer trust and why do customers put faith in, faith in business. You know, we see an overwhelming parallel between the two in terms of what people care about, which is this notion of um, number one, this idea of kind of, uh, they call it intimacy in the customer survey. They call it kind of, uh, you know, sort of psychological safety, vulnerability in, in Google's work. This idea of, can I be open and honest? Can, can I have a degree of transparency and being real? And am I going to be safe to be real in that? Um, I think that's a really big idea. Uh, it's emerging. And I think it's going to be a much more dominant conversation in business in the next decade than argue we, we've, we've seen to date. Uh, and what I hope we progress, I was having a conversation with uh, on my podcast last week with Margaret Heffman, an, an incredible author who writes a lot about willful blindness and topics like that. And she was saying her biggest hope for the world is that we see more practice than preaching of psychological safety in the decade ahead. And I thought that was a very astute observation from someone who works with a lot of leading global businesses. Um, so that's one. And the second one's dependability, this whole idea of do you follow through on what you say you're going to do? Um, and I think that that speaks to the piece around democracy. I think there's a lot of people who feel, whether it's um, the cumulative that can be attributed to one side of politics or the other, or I think both are probably in many ways um, kind of brushed with the same stroke there, that there's been a cumulative of broken promises. This idea of you said the social contract got broken. You know, I remember confronting this for the first time when, uh, I was appointed to chair the, the Youth Summit for the G20 in 2014. And when you looked at an issue that would unify the 1.5 billion young leaders across the G20 countries, it was overwhelmingly youth unemployment. And for a whole generation of young people, it was this moment of sort of, hold on, I think the social contract's broken. I thought you said if I went and did my learning, I'd get to go do my earning. So how come to such an extraordinary degree that's breaking down across the world now and we're seeing such a profound disconnect between you know, me particularly in countries like my colleagues in the US who've accumulated enormous student debts and uh, are going to spend the rest of their lifetime paying it off, let alone social contracts around climate and, and all manner of issues that we could be talking about in that mix. So I think leadership in, in a political sense is extraordinarily challenged. Um, the, the one thing I 
have reflected on in myself in the last 12 months is it's really easy to sit and throw stones at people in uh, political houses, wherever they may be, uh, and to do it to both sides of politics too. Um, it is equally important, and I should be a part of constructive debate, and I believe others should as well, constructive, might I add, but where can I be playing a role in actually being part of the change too? How can I be at a local level, even in our household, how can we be making better choices from a consumption standpoint to be the change we want to see in the climate? How can we be doing things at a local government level with our neighbours and our community uh, to be creating more social cohesion? So I think the important thing alongside it is, I think if we're waiting for leadership to come out of Canberra and Congress and whoever your respective governments might be, we're going to be waiting a long time. Um, I think that leadership overwhelmingly uh, in the generation ahead is going to come from outside politics. It's going to come from civil society, it's going to come from business, and it's going to come from what we increasingly see as distributed leadership models, whether we're looking at things like the Women's March, uh, you know, and the like, where you've got effectively leaderless type structures, but movements, and Christina, right to back what you were talking about at the start, behind clear purposes that just have such resonance with a group of people that they're mobilised collectively to take action. And I think that's going to characterise the generation ahead far more so than any leadership out of a traditional institution. Ultimately, I think traditional institutions are going to have to either reclaim their space or they're going to have to remake themselves. Thanks, Holly. That is just that these are uh, that whole walk you talk um, concept and the passion and the purpose tie in so beautifully together. Because what's the point of having the passion, the purpose, the values, everything written out if you're not prepared to walk the talk on that? Holly Ransom, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I would love um, to have you back talking about maybe we delve more into democracy, politics, uh, and what that means at a later date. I can't encourage anyone enough to grab the book The Leading Edge. Um, all the notes will, will be here, but Holly, thank you so much for spending this time with us. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us, everybody, on Inspired for Impact. We look forward to your company on the next podcast. Um, if you like what you hear, please share far and wide, check the notes, make sure you get Holly's book. <laughs>